Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis. We're going to look at the tail end quickly of chapter 21 and then chapter 22. Genesis chapter 21 and chapter 22. Thankful for uh, the opportunity. I, I tell you, you know, we, we look at God's word and you're reminded every week of just how much is in it, how good this is and how mining it and finding the, the gold nuggets in there is just is a joy no matter how many times you look at it, no matter how many times you go to it. And then we want to do that this evening. If we look at the story of Abraham, we have noted many times the up and down nature of Abraham's walk here. We've seen him have great success. We've seen him have failure. We've seen him make big mistakes. We've seen him accomplish incredible things. And so um, one of those, that accomplishment and those failures kind of come to a conclusion here in chapter 20, 21, and 21. And I want to show you maybe how that happens. And then we'll get to that Genesis 22, that famous passage of Abraham and Isaac. So we'll get there. Let me pray first and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, God, um, as Jesus himself said, quoting Moses, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. And so God, may we find life in your word this evening, the sustenance we need. May we find it here, um, God, through the power of your spirit working in our hearts by applying your word, all for your glory. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 20, you had Abraham with Abimelech. And remember the mistake Abraham made really for the second time concerned with his own safety with Abimelech. And Abimelech was the king of the Philistine people. And so you have Abraham here with Abimelech. And as he does this, uh, as he does this, Abraham again, lies about his relationship with Sarah and it puts Sarah in danger. But not only that, because of uh, the promise of God upon Abraham and Sarah, now it puts Abimelech and his whole people in danger. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 20, it says in verse 17, after Abraham prayed, after uh, after it had been somewhat resolved here, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There was a protection the Lord made in spite of Abraham's error and sinfulness. The Lord still was making sure his promises come true. And if you remember my point in this was that Abraham's lack of faith disturbed nothing on God's end of things. It did not slow down God's promises. It did not change God, God's promises. And God's promises were going to come to pass because he's God. He's in control. It did not disturb everything on God's end. It disturbed everything on, Abra on Abraham's end. Because of Abraham's error, now he was not living in the joy of God's promises, but finding trouble and discomfort and pain and sorrow, even in the midst of God's promises. And we discussed how that is in many ways the case for us. Either you're leaning into faith and you're trusting in the attributes of God and you believe he is who he says he is and he has done what he says he will do. Either you're believing that, trusting that, depending upon that, or you are not. And when you are not, it tends you to make dumb decisions, make uh, decide things that are erroneous and error-filled. And when you do that, then you are going to not only affect you, but everybody around you. Sin is either, as one, as one uh, theologian has said, either sin is uh, killing you or you are killing it. Either you are leaning in and trusting in God and not sinning against him by seeking after him, or you are not doing that. And so Abraham demonstrates that God's promise, it didn't disturb God's promises, his lack of faith. It disturbs his enjoyment of the fulfillment of it and the fullness of it. 
and it disturbs those around him. So God does this with Abraham with Abimelech. But notice how God blesses Abraham even in the midst of his error. Because as he's leaving out, Abimelech gives Abraham a whole bunch of stuff. And Abimelech took sheep, verse 14, oxen, male servants, female servants, gave them to Abraham, returned Sarah's wife to him, and said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And so ultimately, God had, even in the midst of Abraham's error, had continued to bless Abraham, keeping his promises to be faithful. Keeping his promises to be faithful. The main character of God's word is God himself. Here And we see his glory and his faithfulness. Then you got that story with Abimelech. And the next story in, verse, in chapter 21 is the fulfillment of the promise. Just as God had said he would do, now Abraham is 100 years old and Isaac is born. And so you have the fulfillment of the promise. The Lord visited Sarah. We talked about this last week. As he said, the Lord did to Sarah. As he had promised, at the time which God had spoken it, he did it. And so God fulfills the promises made. 25 years before, God made a promise that Abraham would have a son and that son would become heir. And then many nations would come through him. He made that promise to him. Now, 25 years later, at just the time God had decided it was right, he has fulfilled that promise. In spite of Abraham's disobedience, in spite of his, of his lack of faith in many places, God has fulfilled the promises. He has done exactly what he said he would do. And Abraham now has Isaac. Then you see, as that's the case, now they have to deal with the situation of Ishmael. And so they send Ishmael and his uh, mother away, yet God still, because of the connection with Abraham, blesses them in such a way that they become great as well. And Abraham clearly is becoming the father of many nations, not just the nation of Israel, but many nations, just as the promise had said. But those nations, those many nations that come from Abraham are outside of the promises of God, separated, though God is watching over them, it even says, and blessing them. They're outside of those promises not to know his ultimate forgiveness and faithfulness and redemption unless something else happens and that God, as we know, makes a way for those nations to come back, makes a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, you have it set up then. Abraham has a lot of stuff. God has blessed him. The promises are being fulfilled. He's even got his run of the land. He's got that. That was a part of the promise. Now he's got a bunch of things. His, his prowess is becoming greater. His wealth has become greater. So he has the things he needed. He now has the son that God had promised he would have. That's been fulfilled. He has dealt with the other error in situation and judgment and sinfulness. That's the son he had with Hagar. That has been done and situated. That is in order. And then you come back in the second half of chapter 21 and you see Abimelech shows up again. Notice, because these things are important when you look at it, notice that this birth of Isaac and the fulfillment of that promise is bookended here or almost enveloped, if you will, by what happened with Abimelech in the first place and what will happen with Abimelech again. And so what I believe God is doing, even in structuring the narrative this way, is he's showing that when the promise came to Isaac, God had taken care of everything for Abraham. Everything was in order. He had what he needed. He had dealt with Ishmael. He had dealt with even Abimelech in other situations. He has done all of those things. Everything is taken care of. And so he meets up with Abimelech now. At that time, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, this is verse 22, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, Abimelech had learned that lesson from what happened earlier in chapter 20. He had learned that lesson then. And so Abimelech even saw God's blessing upon Abraham. God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity that I have dealt but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land you have sojourned. 
where you have sojourn. And Abraham said, I will swear. What you have here is Abraham and Abimelech, these two, uh, one king. Abraham is acting as a king at this point. And remember, we already have precedent for that back in chapter 14 when Abraham goes to war against the kings and he wins. And so now Abraham is acting as a king, if you will, over his domain. And this passage is letting us know just how powerful Abraham is. Whenever Abimelech comes to him, he doesn't come alone. He doesn't come by himself. His reputation has gone before from chapter 14. He comes with the commander of his army. He comes with Phil Cole. That's what I'm going to call him. We can call him just Phil. And so he comes with Phil, the commander of his army, and he says, I need to make you to make me a promise. And this is quite common. This is not something that's out of the way. It's quite common in this kind of literature in this day. It's quite common to find treaties, obviously, with other kings and other leaders saying, we need some protection. We need to make sure that we're protected. And what's also common is you find at the heart of this, this nature of the seed or the generations to follow. So here you see how Abraham, Abimelech comes to Abraham and Abimelech asks him, he says, I need you to make a promise to me, to make a covenant with me, if you will, that you will not go to war against us because Abraham's prowess has already been seen in battle. He's with God. God is strong. Abimelech recognizes this. And so I don't need you fighting against me or anybody after me. So I need you to take care to not deal falsely with me or my descendants or my posterity. Not prosperity, posterity. We see in this passage a couple things that go back to the promises. We see the nature of the generations to follow. I will make you a great nation. You're already seeing how God is doing that even with Abraham. He has become greater and stronger. Stronger enough that other nations are coming to him as a king to ask for treaties because they know his power. So in an essence, you're already starting to see God fulfill that promise in Genesis chapter 12. But not only that, you're already starting to see God fulfill the promise of a land that will be given. Because now this Abimelech, and because what's happened, Abimelech said, you can have anything that's mine in the land. It's anywhere you want. That's where you can be. And then he comes back to say, you dwell here. And not only do you dwell here, but you living in this land. Now I'm coming to you asking you not kick me out of this land. Keep, let me be here. So he's, he's already demonstrating how God is keeping his promise in, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Those three promises. And not only that, the blessing that Abraham comes, he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, right? You're starting to see that already. And Abimelech's even getting that notion that I need to come to Abraham and I need to ask his blessing on me. So you're starting to see... You're starting to see how God is fulfilling his promises. And what we see in the Old Testament is what we see, what we call trajectories, if you will. You'll see how God fulfills his promises in many ways. But even as God fulfills those promises, we're looking for a greater fulfillment over all of it. Does that make sense? You see how God fulfills this and he keeps his promise in every step. The promise he made to Abraham will be kept to Abraham. He will become great. The nations are coming to him now and asking for blessing. You have that promise being fulfilled and he has a land that is his. God is faithful. But you see that God, that, that trajectory shoots even past Abraham because it goes into Israel and they'll become a great nation and God will give them a place and the nations that bless them will be blessed and those that curse them will be cursed. And then you see how ultimately for us, as we read God's word, as Luke 24 tells us, that trajectory shoots even past Israel and goes to Christ Jesus himself. And the answer to the promises of Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 are Christ Jesus. The great nation that has been provided has been provided in those who believe in Christ. And those are the ones who have been redeemed. And they're from every tribe, every nation that have come. And the land that will be given is a land flowing with milk and honey for us us in heaven one day that has been protected and provided and given. We have a promised land that's a little bit better even than a little square, little spot in Middle East, right? We've got something being prepared for us. And not only that, the place where we find blessing is in the one who is ultimately blessed us in Christ. And so when you do this, you're starting to see how in every area, God's promises are true, right? There's no place that you can go, that's not true. 
What God said there didn't come true. In every area, if you want to say Genesis 12 to 1 through 3, if it's not for Abraham, then it's not really true. He made the promise to Abraham. But it is. Abraham has become great. His, 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 his wealth had become well. He does have a land that God has provided for him and made a way for him. And he has become, uh, has become the father of many as Isaac comes in. Every promise God made to Abraham is true. And just as much as we see that every promise God made to Abraham is true, all of the effects of those promises and trajectories and pointing forward are even greater true because we have one who is greater than Abraham. And we find that in God's word. You're not going to be able to charge God with not coming and fulfilling every part of his promises because all of them are true in every aspect and in every way. And what you have here in the narrative of Abraham is in 20 and 21 here, you have God is saying everything is done. The promises are true. Look at what I've done. I've made you great. I've given you a land and now you have a son. Now you have a son. And you see in this, everything has been prepared. And not only that, God has rectified the situations, if you will, with Abimelech and with Ishmael and Hagar. Everything is in order. Everything is in place. God has done it. And when you look at this, you see that. You see the importance here that the seed will be protected generation to come. You see this covenant that includes and look at what he says over i got to flip my page here look at that my page came out y'all see that that'll help us get through genesis faster um you you see how he does this and he says uh, over in over in chapter 21 um abraham took sheep after all of this he goes up let me go back Tw verse 25 when abraham reproved abimelech about a well of water now i love this Abimelech comes with his commander saying, I need you to not hurt us or do anything to us. Well, let me talk to you about your buddies who are staking down at my well and taking some of my water, right? Abraham sees the opportunity. Anytime they come groveling, you might as well take advantage of it. So Abraham sees the opportunity. He says, now, if this is going to be the case, let's talk about this. He reproved Abimelech about a well of water, maybe even testing Abimelech here that Abraham's servant had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. It's a good answer, whether it's true. So Abraham took sheep and an oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Now remember, we talked about this. What happens when you make a covenant? You pass off some good things. And in fact, what we saw back in Genesis chapter 15 when the covenant was made they took the sheep and the oxen and the turtle doves, and what did they do with them? Y'all remember? They cut them in half. And they cut them in half and put them over against each other to create a lane between them. And you walk between those things, demonstrating that if either one of us break this covenant, this is what happens to us. It's a blood covenant. And so it becomes this ceremony here. They do this. Abraham took all this. And then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand. And this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them, there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And so now Abraham has protection. God has provided a land that is his and he can walk freely in it. He has become great in his wealth and his possessions and what he has so that other kings are even coming to him asking for his blessing. And Abraham does this sacrifice to the who? The everlasting God. So as to say the promises of God never end. And he demonstrates this. He demonstrates this by giving a gift. This idea of Beersheba here. Beersheba can mean two different things. Well of seven or the well of the oath. Either way, you have this idea that these ewe lambs are given as a sense of completion. God has finished what he has promised he would do. He has given me those, those promises. And they're true. And they're true. 
Now, it's important for us to realize, I think, as you get to the end of 21, that that's what's happened here. You get this, and God has shown and demonstrated to Abraham that he's the everlasting God. His promises are true forever, and that he has fulfilled every promise he made, and he's got his kid. And Abraham may think, ah, this is good, right? This is great. God has been faithful. And he's fulfilled it all. And now he's comfortable in the land. He's got treaties with the kings around him. Protection from Phil and Abimelech. He's got everything he can need. He's got wealth so that they're coming and ask him. And I guarantee you nobody else is messing with his well anymore. You know what I mean? He's got all that he needs. He's got water. He's got land. He's got riches. He's got all of the power and influence he could have. And he's got his son. He's got his promise. God has been faithful. And so I don't want us to lose sight that that's where chapter 21 ends for us. It ends with God, the everlasting God, is faithful forever. He's faithful to the end. It ends with that. It ends with Abraham on a high note, having all this protection, having the promises fulfilled, having the everlasting God looking over him. It ends with that. So before we get to chapter 22, let's make mention of chapter 21 and what's come before. Let's make mention that in spite of Abraham's failures, God has been faithful. Let's make mention that when, God, when Abraham needed God to intervene as he goes to try to rescue Lot and the other kings come, God was faithful. Let's make mention of the fact that God reiterated his promise and gave Abraham everything he needed at every step of the way over and over again. God is faithful. And so when you get to chapter 21, the everlasting God is always faithful. He has done it. He's fulfilled it. It is good. But chapter 22 is going to teach us that the promises don't end right there. That the promises made to Abraham don't just stop at that point. Something else is going to happen. And in light of God's faithfulness, he's calling for a response from Abraham. Do you really trust me? The test is going to come in this. I want you to know, it's, it's, it's what we've seen in so many other places. Particularly, for example, we talked about this with the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, they get to Sinai. Before God gives them the ten, he says what? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. I have already redeemed you. Now, in light of that, here's how you live. Here's how you live. Does this bother y'all that I'm holding these glasses and making all this motion with it? Because I just suddenly did feel like my dad. In light, I mean, I did. I was over here pointing at y'all like that right there. It may be offensive. I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. But. In light of God's faithfulness, let's see how you're responding. I want you to think of Genesis 22 like that. God had taken care of all the promises. And Abraham has sojourned under the promises of the everlasting God in the land of the Philistines safely and in a good way. And after these things, God tested Abraham. Notice that after these things. And when God's test, if I could just apply that for us a little bit, when God's test comes to you, it never comes. It never comes without God already having demonstrated his faithfulness. We oftentimes look and ask God, why are you testing us? But we never look at God and say, why are you blessing us? Because ultimately, God's test is going to come when God has demonstrated his faithfulness. And now he's going to see, where are you at in light of what I've done for you? And it is right for him to put us to this test. We want to say at some point, why would God do that? Because God is God, first of all, and God has been faithful. And so the test is good for us to demonstrate our own hearts. And after these things, that after these things is speaking of the work of the everlasting God who has been faithful to the promises. And so now after these things, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. When you walk through a test that God is putting in your life, and I don't know if you got to be uh, spiritually minded too much. I don't know how it is to figure that out. But sometimes you know when you're walking through a test, you know it, right? 
You don't need anybody to tell you. You don't need anybody, anybody to help you. Figure. You know God is putting something on you. Is I true? Do I truly believe in him? And, and remember what I said last week. It's one thing for us to say God is always faithful, right? God is good. And, it's, and you all jump up all the time. You know what I'm saying? It's one thing to say that at church. It's another thing to live like it. Does that make sense? And that's what happened with Abraham. There are times in his story that he knew God is faithful and he lived like it. He stepped up against the kings and he whooped them because he knows God is fighting for him, right? And there's other times he knew God is faithful and he didn't live like it. He stepped up to Abimelech and he got scared and he panicked and he lied trying to get out of something. He knew God is faithful. His knowledge of God didn't change. God didn't change, obviously. His knowledge of God didn't change. And what happens to us as believers oftentimes, we know those things, but do we put them into practice and do we live like it? Do we live like it? It's that idea of trust and obey. You cannot separate those two. They go together. To believe something is to follow, is to go after it, is to act upon it, right? Believe is action. And so here, Abraham recognizes at the end of 21, God is everlasting God. After these things, he's going to be tested. Abraham has the foundation laid. He knows it. He believes it. Now let's see if he puts his knowledge and belief in action. In action. So here, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, with an exclamation mark. So God may have yelled it. And he said, here I am, right? He said, take your son. Now get this. Take your son, your only son. Y'all follow what he said there? Remember chapter 21. What is God saying to Abraham? This one is the one of promise. This one is the one that everything hangs on. You don't have an alternative. The promises I made to you, there's no other option. You may have gone to Hagar and Sarah, remember Sarah, I'm not going, I'm, ladies, I'm not, I just want to let y'all know it was Sarah's idea. You may, Sarah may have brought Hagar and you may in your mind have jumped, I'm going to hedge my bets if this thing with Sarah doesn't work out. You may have done that, but that doesn't count. You only have one option for the promises. This is him. Take Isaac, your son, your only son in whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him from the start. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, from the start, God says what's about to happen. Abraham, take your son, and I want you to offer him up to me. Take him to Moriah. I want you to offer him up to me. Offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice what I like to call the immediate obedience of Abraham. Abraham here, just like chapter 12, whenever God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, go to a land I'm going to show you. So Abraham got up and went. The response Abraham gives so far, the test is right, right? He says, take your son, the only son you have, the son of the promise. Take him, and I want you to make him a burnt offering. So the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, got some wood, and he left, and he went. He starts out on the journey. He looks at it, and he goes, okay. This has got to hit him funny. And none of us in this room would dare imagine that if God called us to do something like this, we're going to back talk a little bit. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But not Abraham. He gets up and he goes. And we'll get to this, but he gets up and he goes. He tells him where to go. Moriah sowed his donkey and he left. Verse 4. On the third day, y'all watch out now. Y'all see, see how that goes? On the third day, on the third day, I said it three times, I didn't have my glasses on, I didn't know what the next word was, but on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, 
stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. We'll worship and come again to you. Abraham here gives a statement. Y'all stay here. I and the boy will go. And y'all know here that it may be missed in the English, but in the Hebrew, what he says is, we will come back to you. Now he goes and he's saying, he knows what the Lord has called him to do. You offer him up as a burnt offering. But Abraham takes his son, his only son, whom he loved, and he walks him up to this mountain and he looks. And already you begin to see Abraham's belief in this, where Abraham's at. Abraham says, we're going, we'll be back. You stay here. You stay here. And so they take off and they head. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, y'all remember this after this, these things, we're not quite sure how many years have taken place. We know the word boy can mean two things, either a young toddler or an elementary age. We're not sure what age. We do know Isaac can talk and he speaks English. And so he says, <laughs> Isaac said to his father, my father, here I am, son. Ask me anything, basically. Bring it on. What's going on? Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said what? Y'all got it? God will provide. But what does he say? God will provide for himself. Who's the sacrifice for? Who's the worship to? So God will provide for himself exactly what is needed for us to worship him, to come into his presence. He'll provide for us a burnt offering, my son. So they both went with them together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son. I guess Isaac was quiet. If he's anything like my kid, wasn't the case. Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, at this point you look at it and go, man, that is something. But I think we need to know the mind of Abraham and what's going on in his head right here. Now, how do we know that? What's the best interpreter of Scripture? Scripture. God's word will teach us what this is. So if you can, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, by all means, we know what that is. The hall of faith. It's the by faith chapter. And here we become demonstrated through this by faith, by faith, by faith. Going through the Old Testament stories. We see up there in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age and she was considered him faithful who had promised. We see that. We have two sections really of Abraham. We have that section up there starting in the first part. But then we have another section down in chapter 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about chapter 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, remember, all of those have been true. God is everlasting. He had received the promises. He had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son. Now the way Hebrews 11 is demonstrated, he has reached in the pouch, grabbed the knife, and raised it up. He has gone that far. He was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which... Figuratively speaking, he did. He brought him back. Do y'all get that then? Do y'all see what the author of Hebrews is saying about the act of Abraham? 
we look at it and we think that Abraham's maybe sitting here, God is causing him to do something sadistic in some way and kill his own son. But what God is showing to Abraham and what Abraham believed at this point in his test, what he believed is that if he stuck the knife through the heart of Isaac, that the promises of God were so great and the glory of God was so true and the fact that God would never lie, even if he stuck his knife through the heart of Isaac, God would bring him back from the dead, which he did figuratively on the third day here, right? And so here, Abraham believed it. And because he knew who God was, and he knew his power, his omnipotence, and we knew his love for Abraham, and we knew his faithfulness to the promises, and we knew that God could, he knew that God could never lie and cannot lie. Y'all know God can't do some things, as the scripture says. He cannot lie. He cannot go against himself. He knew all of those things would be true. And just as much as he breathed the breath into Isaac for the very first life that he had and gave him to Sarah and Abraham when both of them were as good as dead themselves, and as much as he has done that, he can take Isaac and bring him back to life in the same way. He raised that knife with a faithful confidence that God is always going to fulfill his promises and this son will come back to life the moment I kill him. Do you see the mindset there then? It goes from, what's Abraham thinking? To, yeah, that's true. God is going to keep his promises. God is going to be faithful. God is going to watch over us. God is going to protect us. God is going to do what He says He's going to do. He always has. He always will. God will provide all that is needing. He is God. I trust Him. I trust Him. And so ultimately, Abraham raises the knife knowing that God is faithful. God is powerful. And I trust Him. He's always kept his promises. And I love it. Y'all have a verse 11. What y'all got to start verse 11 in y'all's Bible? One of those good, glorious butts. Y'all know what I'm talking about? He raised his knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called on him from heaven. Now, I'm not, I, I, I won't, I, this is, oh, you know what I'm saying. Like, I wanted to be laid back tonight. You know what I'm saying? I want to come up here and just kind of let we we'll talk about this for a little bit. It's a great story. The angel of the Lord called from heaven. Now, I've already talked to y'all about who that angel of the Lord is. And could you imagine with me for a moment? Because what does Jesus say in John? Jesus said, Abraham saw me and he rejoiced. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so here, the angel of the Lord calls from heaven. And I have said this before. I make the argument on many times, who is this angel of the Lord that appears to Joshua outside the walls of Jericho? Who is the angel of the Lord that appeared to Abraham right there before Lot has to go in and he pleads with Lot? Who is that? The second person of the Trinity. Jesus himself stops Abraham from slaughtering his son. Jesus himself says, Stop, Abraham. Calls from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. God himself stops him and says, I will provide. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord sees here is the name. Now there are 28, looked it up, 28 different definitions really of how the word see works. I mean, physically we see things. We, ha we, we speak of seeing mentally, right? You speak of, oh, you explain something to me and you know, oh, now I see. You know, you don't physically see it, but you finally understand it. Or whenever someone tells you to take out the trash, y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm just using an example from my life. Someone tells you to do something, what do you say? 
I'll see to it. In other words, I'll take care of it. I'll provide what you need. So here, when he says the Lord sees, I think the better understanding for us is not just while God does definitely see Abraham, where he's at and what he's done, what I think it's meaning here ultimately for us is the Lord will take care of it. I'll see to it. I'll see to it. I'll take care of it. And so as the sacrifice comes, and what we note here is when they go to the mountain, what's going to happen? Worship's going to take place. And how is worship going to take place? Through a sacrifice. A sacrifice is going to happen on this mountain. The question is, who will provide that sacrifice and where would that sacrifice come from? And what Abraham finds is the Lord has provided for himself a sacrifice and the sacrifice has come from the hand of the Lord himself. And so here, God has seen to it. Not only are you called to worship, but God's going to provide everything you need to worship. You don't have to bring anything with you ultimately. You don't have to bring the sacrifice in your hand. He will provide the sacrifice for you. The Lord will provide. And what we see here is just a glimpse already of that substitutionary atonement that God does, that he's going to provide a sacrifice in your place. We already saw a glimpse of this back in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve sinned and they were naked and now they were ashamed and they were inappropriate before God. But the Lord sacrificed the animals and clothed them so that they they will be appropriate in his presence again, having gone through the blood sacrifice needed in order to make them appropriate. We see it again here in Genesis 22. God has called Abraham to worship and God has provided the sacrifice needed for him to worship. This is what's pointing us then ultimately and why the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, our Lord, stops Abraham and says, I'll see to it. I'll see to it. Abraham saw that day and he rejoiced. He rejoiced. Now, sacrifice must take place in order for worship to happen. The question is, will God see to it or not for us? And what we know, what we know tonight is that God has provided something more than a lamb caught in a thicket. God provided his son, his only son, in whom he loved. This, as God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is him. And God has provided him because that beloved son in whom he's well pleased is also on that same day that God said that, the testimony of John the Baptist was, there's the lamb. Not caught in a thicket, but openly humbly, graciously coming himself. Not forcefully, but lovingly and graciously giving of himself as a sacrifice for his people. If you're going to worship, offering must take place. The question is, can you bring that offering yourself? And the answer is no. It must be provided for you. And the Lord has seen to it that the offering needed for you to worship God and Him alone has been provided through His only Son. And right here we get the perfect glimpse of that. The Lord will provide what the Lord has provided. The Lord has provided. Genesis 22 becomes a glorious picture for us as we look to ultimately the cross. As we think about this, how should we react? First of all, let me give you this real quick. One, the hero of this story is God himself. And so if you're looking at this story and you want to come away with something, come away with the fact that God has provided everything Abraham needed and spared his son. Right? So that's the hero. Jesus says all of the scriptures, what was written in the law of Moses, what was written in the prophets, what was written in the Psalms and the writings, all of it is about me. And ultimately, this passage should point us to the one who's been provided for us faithfully. By the way, why did he make Abraham travel three days to this place called Moriah? Because Moriah will be where Jerusalem is built. 
Here in Genesis 22, it's a wasteland. There's nothing there. It's a forest. But the Mount Moriah is where the temple will end up being built on. It's where David would buy the threshing floor. It's where Solomon, in response to Abraham and David's moments, builds his temple right here on Mount Moriah, a precious place for us. It's the same area. Those mountains around it are the same areas that Jesus himself will be sacrificed for his people. That same blessing. We see here God has provided for this. The hero of this story is Christ Jesus. And what we come away with this is what God has done for us in his son and the provision needed for us. The provision needed for us. But also, what do we look to if we think of Galatians chapter 3? Galatians chapter 3, we're thinking of who are the children. Like if you go back to Genesis 12, who are the children of Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Amen? How to preach. Who are these people? Is it just the, the Jews that are here? Is that all it is? Is it just those people? And Paul says no. He's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. And he's saying, listen. What includes you as children of Abraham is not your bloodlines. He says here, he says in chapter 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's those who live their life in light of it. And what did Abraham believe? Abraham believed God could raise the dead. That's what Abraham believed. Abraham had enough faith to believe God could raise the dead. And we are in the same boat even today. Do we have the question you got... All of us must answer. If you call yourself a child of God, then at some point you had to come to the realization, do I believe that God can raise the dead? Because your whole faith is dependent upon that thing. Can God raise the dead? Abraham believed it. Do you have faith to believe it as well? If you do, welcome to the promises of God. The blessing that he had because the ones who were children of Abraham are the ones who had the same faith Abraham has. The ones who were children of Abraham believed God can raise the dead. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So listen here Galatians and listen here a bunch of you Greenvilleites. Promises have come to us because God said, Abraham from you the nations shall be blessed. The nation shall be blessed. And why is that? Because God raising the dead is too small a thing, as Isaiah says, for just Judah. It's a beacon to the nations, and anyone who believes in Christ shall have life. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does, not, who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the circumstances come by the law... The, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but by God gave it to Abraham. Why then, by promise, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone, everything under sin 
so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For all who are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you were sons, God has set the spirit of his son into his hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you're an heir of God. In other words, if you have the faith Abraham has, then you receive the promises. You have an inheritance that is yours because you're a child of God. You're a child of God. So our faith that is required for us, our faith is required for us. It's not necessarily for us just simply saying this exemplary hermeneutic of be like Abraham. If you're going to be like Abraham, you be like him in a way that he looks to Jesus as the author and perfecter the one who has come for him and adopted him into his family. And just as Abraham is an heir of the promises of God, so are all of those who believe in Christ. And ultimately and finally, ultimately and finally, whatever nation you may be from, wherever place you may be, if you believe in Christ, you are blessed in him. So the promise that says, the promise that says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That promise hinges upon Jesus Christ himself. You are blessed when you bless Christ and honor him and glory him. You are cursed when you do not bless Christ and honor him and glory in him. The promise comes down to how do you deal with the one who's fulfilled it all. Abraham had a little bit revealed to him, and he believed God could raise the dead. We, as God's children today, must believe God not only can raise the dead, he has raised the dead. And he has provided the offering and sacrifice we need to know him and worship him and follow him by faith. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. It's true. And help us to believe by faith all that you have promised. God, help us to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the fulfillment of all the promises, the yes and amen. Help us look to Christ as we live every day, trusting and following. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.